any of our younger children would like to go to Stepping Stones during the sermon time, you're free to go. This morning, as we continue our study through the book of Joshua, we come to a section that, uh, as we mapped out our preaching passages, is by far the longest section. Um, I will not read all five and a half chapters that we're going to cover this morning, but I am going to choose just a couple of key portions. I'm going to begin by reading in chapter 14, verse 6 and read through the end of chapter 14, verse 15, and then we'll skip over and read the first 10 verses of chapter 18. Please give your attention to God's word. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel." Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Now turning over to chapter 18, the first 10 verses. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. 
So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Well, I would admit to you that this is the first and undoubtedly the last time that I will attempt to preach on five and a half chapters of Scripture. But as you scan over these chapters from Joshua chapter 14, verse 6, where we started this morning, all the way to the end of chapter 19, as you look at it, you'll see a lot of Hebrew names, names of cities, names of geographical regions in Palestine. These are places that existed 3,000 years ago on the other side of the planet. We can understand why all these names and places would be meaningful to historical scholars who are studying the geography of the Middle East in ancient times, but what value does this section of scripture have for us living here in the 21st century? Well, let me begin by reminding you of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is profitable. Even these long lists of Hebrew names from ancient Jewish history. What profit do these passages have for us? Well, I think the first thing I would point out to you is that there is something, just from experience, you know that there is something instinctual about owning a piece of land. Something that appeals to something deep in our human nature. I never owned any property until my family and I moved here five and a half years ago to State College. In God's providence, the churches I served before this all had what were called manses. Church-owned houses called manses, not to be confused with mansions, not at all. <laughs> and in many ways, I enjoyed living in a manse. I'm not a fix-it guy. I'm not a guy who enjoys doing repair jobs around the house. So it was nice having a group of deacons of, that were responsible to take care of those kinds of things. But as you know, there's certainly a downside to renting all your life and never really owning anything. And there was this deep insatiable longing that both my wife and I had during all those years that we lived in manses. We had this deep longing to own property. Matter of fact, we would often dream about buying a little log cabin in the woods somewhere just to say we owned property that belonged to us. And so you can imagine that we were overjoyed when we were called to come here to State College and to Oakwood and to hear that Oakwood didn't have a manse. For the first time in our lives, we'd be able to buy our own home and have our own property. And we love our house. We love our little piece of land, all 2.22 acres, 22 hundredths of an acre that we own but we own it. It's our space. Well, after 295 more payments to the bank, it'll be our space. <laughs> and I found that there is something about ownership 
ownership of the land that really satisfies a deep, I think, God-given need in all of us. A need to have our own space. To have boundaries around a sphere of responsibility and authority where we can serve, live, and enjoy life. A place that's secure, stable, and comfortable. I think if you understand that instinctual need that we have, I think it helps to understand why did God bother in his word, in his inspired word, to include all of this material about the allotment of geography? Because I think it's about finding your own space in the kingdom of God. Part of the problem that we have in identifying with passages like this, I think it would certainly we'd be a lot more interested if the names we were reading weren't these indecipherable and unpronounceable Hebrew names, but instead were Bowlesburg and Lamont and Belfont and, you know, Park Forest, places like that that we know that we can picture it when we read the names. These names don't mean anything to us. But I think another part of it is that we're just not as connected to the land as we used to be. I think the last few generations, we are far more disconnected from the land than any generations who lived before us. And we've lost, I think, a sense of the meaningfulness of being connected to the land. How many of you get your food primarily from your own property? Maybe a couple, but I would hazard a guess not more than a couple of you. How many of you live in homes that were handed down to you from your ancestors? How many of you plan to hand on your home and your property to your children? We're just not as connected to the land as we used to be. And you get a sense of it. You don't even have to go back that far. Uh, one of the most well-known movies in the history of our culture is Gone with the Wind. And there's one place in the movie where Scarlett, the main character in Gone with the Wind, says to her father, she doesn't want Tara, the plantation, the lands that belonged to her family. She didn't want them. She, she was more concerned with what was going on in her life, and she just didn't care about the land. And so this is what her father says to her. He says, land is the only thing in the world worth working for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. And if this world is all that there is, then that's very true. Everything else goes away, but the land is always here. Well, we know from the word of God that one day the land will be destroyed by fire, but it will be restored into a new heavens and a new earth. And so the land that we have today does point to eternal realities. And so that's why I want to begin as we look at this long section to look at scripture's perspective on the significance of the promised land. The promised land is a powerful image that is not only talked about in the beginning of scripture, but it really is carried on through the entire scriptures. And to understand this, you have to go all the way back to the beginning, back to creation, back to Genesis 1 and 2. Before sin entered the world, God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he gave them important instructions about their purpose and mission in life. They were to fill the earth and subdue it, they were to have dominion over the creatures of the earth. And they were to work the garden and to keep it. To rule over a sphere of authority and responsibility under God's reign. 
They were to be stewards of the creation. That's what they were created to do. To serve God according to his word by subduing the earth, taking dominion over the creation, being stewards of God's earth. And yes, Adam and Eve became sinners. They rebelled against God. Sin entered into the creation. The creation came under a curse. And so the work of subduing the earth and taking dominion over it got a lot harder after sin entered into this world. It brought pain, thorn, thistles, sweat, and toil, as the Lord predicted when they fell from grace. But their calling remained the same by his grace. God did not destroy them. He had grace upon them. They continued to exist in this world, and their calling remained. God had given them a sphere of authority. They had been cast out of the Garden of Eden, but they were to continue to take dominion and to subdue the creation. And then later, when God chose Abraham and his family to be his people, a keep, there were three parts of the promise that God gave to Abraham. He says, I will make from you a great nation, a great number of people, I will make your name great, and your nation, that nation will get, be placed in a land, and your people in that land will be a blessing to all nations. And again, the land was important. This is the covenant of grace that we still live under. When God gave Israel the land, the land became an awful big part of their calling. That piece of land once it was allotted, would be that family's most important legacy to leave. The law of God had instructions in it to ensure that when families were given land by God, that they, those, those lands would stay within that family. If a family became so poor that they had to sell their land to somebody else to get out of their debt, you know that according to God's law, after 50, on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, those lands had to be restored to the family. It was important that each family retain its sphere of authority and responsibility under God. And so that's what these chapters are all about. It's the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. It goes back to the original intent for mankind before sin entered the world. That God always intended for his people to be given a sphere of authority and responsibility which centered in the old covenant under a literal land in, in the Middle East where they would serve him as the one true God. And one of the things that we see in this passage, I'm going to skip over the, the passage in chapter 18 for a second, those first 10 verses. One thing I want to pull out of there is that it makes clear that God is the one who gives the land. In chapter 18, it says there were still seven tribes of the 12 tribes who hadn't received their inheritance, the land that had been promised to them. And so it begins by telling how they had established Shiloh as a temporary home for the tabernacle. Shiloh, in the early days of the people taking over the promised land, would be the place where the people would come together to worship at the tabernacle in the presence of God. And so Shiloh, which was literally in the center of the promised land, would be the 
metaphorical center of the people's lives. That's where they would come to worship God. Worshiping God would be the center of the nation's life. And it's there in Shiloh that God himself distributes land. You notice that? That Joshua sent the men out to basically survey the land and come back with a map, divide it up into seven sections, and then it was God, by the casting of lots, and this was a means in the Old Testament by which God revealed his will, God dictated which tribe would get which land. It's a central principle. Is that we, could, we don't go out and pick our land. We, we, I think in the way we deal with land, we feel like we're choosing it, we sell it, we buy it. But in this era, God's people were assigned the land where they would live. And that's why this concept of the land in the Old Covenant fits into our broader concept of a calling. The boundaries of the land in which the Old Testament people of God lived was set by God. The boundaries of our sphere of authority and responsibility are set by God. It's a calling. In Psalm 16, which was read earlier in the service, it describes that beautiful nature of accepting God's boundaries for your life. How God establishes your place in life and your circumstances in life. And it speaks, and, and Psalm 16 speaks of it somewhat metaphorically and points to the fact that God is the ultimate inheritance, as we've talked about before. But in this world, God sets a calling before us, which when we submit to that calling, it is a good calling, no matter how difficult it may be. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance a picture of contentment within a person's calling in life a, a servant of God ruling over his fear of the sphere of authority under God's authority but the land in the old covenant was never the final reward because death was a reality to the individual believer nothing's eternal in this world not even the land Canaan the promised land was a shadow it always pointed forward to some greater inheritance, some greater reward. That's really the secret behind understanding some of the most confusing chapters, perplexing chapters in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 47 and 48. At the end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet is given a vision of a perfected land. You see, the people of God were in exile. They had been cast out of the land because of their sin and idolatry. And Ezekiel comes and gives them a picture of a restored Israel. And it's all in the terms of land. It has a temple that's portrayed where God dwells again among the people. But it also has an allotment of the land. And scholars have looked at that and said, well, first of all, Israel was never restored in the way to the Old Testament land the way they were before. So how could that what, what relevance does Ezekiel 47 and 48 have? But if you look at the language of Ezekiel 47 and 48, you realize very quickly it's meant to be somewhat metaphorical. It's a vision. It's pointing to something greater in the future. A future land where God's people would receive their perfect spheres of authority in a perfected land where God dwells in their midst forever. And that's why the language of Ezekiel, the end of the book of Ezekiel, is often found, again, repeated in the book of Revelation, which points us to a future new heavens and a new earth. 
But if you understand this, then it helps you understand what the writer of Hebrews was talking about when he talks about all the faithful saints of the Old Testament. And listen to how he describes Abraham. Again, Abraham who received the first promise of the land of Canaan as a promised land. This is what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham's faith. Beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's not talking about what's happening here under, under Joshua. That's talking about something far in the future for Abraham, but that was his ultimate hope. We know this because down in verse 13, it says this, speaking of Abraham and Sarah and all the Old Testament saints, says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That's really what I was trying to say at the beginning. We all have this deep in our soul, this hunger for a homeland. And we know that none of the land and none of the things of this world can satisfy that need. It points us to a future reality, which Ezekiel and the book of Revelation lays out as a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells in the midst of his people. True believers in the old covenant times put their hope in a coming messianic king who would defeat all of their enemies, even their worst enemies, sin and death, who would take away sin and all of its effects, and reign over them in a glorified new heavens and new earth. And Jesus Christ is that messianic king. Jesus Christ is the one who has come to shed his blood, to atone for our sins, to pay for our sins, to cleanse us and make us clean and acceptable as we put our faith in him and repent of our sins and to not only give us citizenship in this eternal kingdom that is coming and in a very real sense is already here, but also to make us his sons and daughters to make us princes and princesses or kings and queens even the scripture uses within this eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus was trying to say to his disciples when he says, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He will reign forever and we will reign under his authority as stewards of the new heavens and the new earth. All who put their faith in him, all who trust in him have that promise. And so when I think about the allotment to me today, that property on Berkshire Drive where my wife and I live, that's part of my kingdom, an important part of my kingdom. An allotment that God has given me with boundaries around a sphere of authority and responsibility. And when I care for my family there, when I mow the lawn and whack down the weeds or fix the plumbing or paint the walls or feed my dog and my cat and my birds, when I do these things, 
I'm serving under the lordship of Christ and I am taking care of the kingdom that he has placed under my authority and responsibility. That's my sphere. That's not all of it. It's also my workplace. It's where I shop. It's where I recreate. These are the boundaries around the circumstances that God has given to me. It's my calling in life. And I get to serve under the risen king. Christ is Lord over all of it. You see, salvation isn't just about getting forgiven. Too many Christians think, well, that's all that Christ needed to do was to wash away my sins and make me clean before God, and then I get to go on my own merry way. No, salvation is about the restoration of all things to what God originally intended, including the earth. God will restore the earth to a state of perfection one day. Christ is coming again. He already reigns as king on the throne and he is coming back to restore all this creation. And when he does that, we will reign with him, which means we will reign under his lordship in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope. Life without sin, life without the curse, life without suffering. Now I give all this as background to take just a few minutes then to look at an example of someone under old covenant terms who is living in the shadows of the old covenant, still looking at the earthly land of Palestine as a symbol of a greater home to come, Caleb. Caleb was a great man of God. If you remember, Caleb was, this passage, this, which the whole passage describes the allotment of land. It's interesting, it starts here with Caleb coming he didn't wait for Joshua to come to him. He came to Joshua and said, I'm ready. Give me the land that Moses promised to me and to my family. Caleb was the other spy, along with Joshua, who didn't reject the Lord's authority when he told them to go take the land in the generation prior. He's the one who came. And to just give you a sense of the faith of Caleb, listen to what he said back when 45 years earlier, when Israel first came to the, to the border of the promised land and then refused to enter into it, listen to what Caleb said to the people. This is from Numbers 13, verse 30. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then along with Joshua in chapter 14, verse 7, he says, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights at us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That was the faith of Caleb 45 years before the passage we're reading now. And now he comes to Joshua with that same confidence. Only he and Joshua had remained faithful in that time of testing. And that whole generation died in the wilderness homeless because they refused to take the promised land by God's faith in God's promise and faith in God's presence with them. And so it's interesting, it's this passage we talked about today, but chapter 14, it begins with Caleb taking his portion, and it ends in, at the end of chapter 19 with Joshua receiving his portion. These two great men of God. 
I want to point out just three things that stand out about Caleb's example. First of all, look at the adversaries that Caleb faced. He faced the most powerful, the strongest adversaries that any tribe had to face when they took over the promised land. He had to face the Anakim. We've talked about the Anakim quite a bit in our studies through Joshua. The Anakim were the, were the giants. We don't know how large they were, but we just knew they were extraordinarily large human beings. They had fortified cities. They lived in the mountains. They were invincible in earthly terms. And Caleb comes confidently saying, give me the, the land of the giants, I will take it, because God has promised it to me. Secondly, look at Caleb's age. Did you notice that? 85 years old. Sounds like, uh, you know, Owen really laid it to you, uh, aged saints last week about your necessity of you staying engaged in the work of the kingdom no matter what age you are, no matter what your circumstances. Here it comes again. Caleb, 85 years old, is ready to go take on the most difficult part of the land, the land where the giants lived in their fortified cities. I guess, to be honest though, I would love to just leave it there because I'm not near 85 yet, but I did a little figuring. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in scripture, people lived a long time before the flood. I don't know what the flood did to the earth, the environment, the climate. I don't know what the flood did, the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. But something that happened at the flood caused ages to dramatically drop after the flood. Noah lived 950 years. But slowly we see ages dropping through the early books of the Bible to the point where Miriam, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, if you look at their age spans, they all lived around 120 years. Still longer than our lifespan today, but not nearly as long as Noah's lifespan. So I had to do a little figuring. Okay, let's see. If Caleb was 85 years old when the lifespan was 120, and I did the math, that means in, in terms of today's lifespan, Caleb would be about my age. And then I felt more convicted. I couldn't just dismiss, just dismiss his age as being out of reach to me. This is, this is, he's talking about somebody at my stage of life going to fight the giants in the land. But it didn't really matter. He said God had kept him strong. God had kept him vital. But it didn't really matter what his strength of flesh was. His strength, his confidence, his success came because he had faith in the promise of God. God had said, this is your land. If you trust me, if you serve me, I will give you the land. That's where his confidence was. That brings me to the third factor of Caleb. That was his faith. That's what's emphasized. Three times in this passage, it says about Caleb that he wholly followed the Lord. He wholly followed the Lord. This man was sold out to serve God with all of his life. To place all of his sphere of responsibility and authority under God's lordship. And Caleb was confident. And we know that confidence is the key to success in any area of life. A baseball player cannot play well unless he's confident in his abilities. A corporate executive cannot perform well in his workplace unless he's confident. We can't do anything in life unless we're confident. But Caleb's confidence was in God's promise God's will and God's power to perform his will. 
It's what the Apostle Paul called boasting in the Lord. I mean, it's easy to read what Caleb says in chapter 14 and sound like he's boasting, but he's not boasting. He's boasting in the Lord like Paul boasted in the Lord. Look at what God can do through sinners like me. I'm nothing, but when God promises me something and then sends me to do something, if I trust in him and empowered by him, I can do everything that God requires me to do. And see, this is what it's like in the kingdom of God. You have to redefine success. Don't measure success the way the world measures success. Success in your kingdom under Christ's kingdom looks like trusting in him. It comes from submitting to him, making him Lord. Now, I know people say, yeah, he is Lord. He's already Lord. Yes, he is. But I need to submit to him as Lord if I am going to find success. And if I try to reject him as Lord, that is how I will fail in the kingdom of God. And that brings me to the third step to success, which is discerning his will for your kingdom. The kingdom you have today is only practice for the kingdom you'll reign over for all eternity. But in order to reign, you need to know what the will of your superior is, what the will of your Lord is, and you need to basically seek to have dominion over your kingdom according to his will. That's what success looks like. And I'll tell you right now, for many of you, the, the, the kingdom, the sphere of authority and responsibility that God has given to you includes suffering. Because suffering is a major way that God's kingdom gets advanced in a fallen world like this. And I think for some of you, you need to accept the fact that the boundaries of the kingdom that God has entrusted to you, the sphere of authority and responsibility, includes suffering. Either relationship suffering or physical suffering or financial suffering. These are the circumstances that God has called you to. And success is not going to look, in that kingdom, success is not going to look like it looks like in the world. Success will be trusting and submitting and serving the Lord. Caleb is an example of someone who wholly followed the Lord, who took dominion over his kingdom by faith in the Lord. But there are several examples, and I'll close with this. There are several examples in this passage of a failure to take dominion, a failure to subdue, a failure to take all of the space that the Lord had given. At the end of chapter 15, just look there for a second, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Over in chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer, for the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And then verses 12 and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. They left parts of the land that God had given unconquered. They left the Canaanites in control 
or they at least left the presence of the Canaanites in places where they were to be driven out. The reasons, you get a hint at a couple of them there. One is that it says in chapter 16 that some of the Canaanites were left to serve as slaves. You know, trying to have the best of both worlds. We can take the sphere of authority and responsibility you guys given me, but I want the world to be able to serve me. I want to be able to compromise and work with the world in some way. Or at the end of 17, it says that the, if you read carefully that last section in chapter 17, the tribe of Manasseh wasn't able to drive out the Canaanites because they feared their chariots of iron. How many times had the Lord, Lord taught them this lesson that what looks impressive, what looks powerful, what looks like great armament in the eyes of the world is nothing before the power of God. And so it's the same reason that we allow unconquered areas in the spheres of authority and responsibility that God has given to us. Fear of man, pride, selfishness, and the lust of the flesh. Moses had warned them a generation earlier that if they left any traces of the Canaanites in the land, they would begin to serve false gods and to reject the one true God. And Joshua, before he died, he laid before them that child. He says, says, as for me, we're going to serve the Lord. You choose. Are you going to serve the idols of the lands that you've left or the idols of the land to which you've come? Are you going to serve the one true God? Well, that's really the background to the book of Judges. Chapter 1 in the book of Judges, interesting, in light of the passages we're talking about today. After, it says that, that Israel served the Lord, generally speaking, while Joshua was alive. But after Joshua died, the people began to serve false gods and to abandon the true God. And so chapter 1 of the book of Judges is a list of all the territories in the promised land that were left under the control of the Canaanites or not fully subdued by the Israelites. And chapter 2 basically says this. Let me read you the indictment from Judges chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And you know the book of Judges, don't you? It's full of sin and rebellion and idolatry, a very dark period in the history of God's people. Because they didn't trust the Lord, they didn't submit to the Lord, and they didn't serve the Lord as they should. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these failures of the Old Testament church had this purpose. It says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So let me just close with a few questions. Hopefully this reorients the way you look at the world, the way you look at your sphere of authority and responsibility. It's easy to look at the world and think that the Canaanites rule, but Christ rules. He is on the throne. Nothing happens outside of his will. He has given you a sphere of authority and responsibility, your calling in this life, boundaries set by him. Where are the Baals? Where are the idols? Where are the gods of this world in your sphere of authority and responsibility? 
Where is their Canaanite worldly presence and influence within the boundaries of the kingdom that Christ has entrusted to you? Is there any part of your life where you have not taken dominion? Any place where Jesus Christ is not being served as Lord in your job, in your dating relationships, in your entertainment choices, whatever it is within the boundaries of your calling? Your sphere of authority and responsibility, your little kingdom within the broader kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is more than your home address. It's more than your work address. It defines your calling in this world, your family, your career, your church, your friends, your hobbies, your kingdom that needs to be brought under dominion, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Are you more like the unfaithful tribes who allowed the Canaanites and their false gods to live in the midst? Or are you more like Caleb, whose life was characterized by what Paul would describe as the, the indwelling power of the believer when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Caleb saw giants in the land and he did not shake in fear. He says, that's a great opportunity for me to display the glory of God, the power of God within the kingdom that has been entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us citizens within your eternal kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for giving us responsibility within that kingdom, for adopting us into your family and calling us to rule under Christ's authority as part of his family. Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we have compromised with this world. Forgive us for the many ways in which we fear man and don't have confidence in your promise and your power. Lord, I pray that you would help us, strengthen us to do the work of the kingdom during our lifetime with our sights set on the greater land to come and the greater, more perfect reign of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. May this hope drive us always. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.